is so sweet. Oh. <clears throat> okay. We should just do Taylor Swift all, right? All morning. Yeah. I'm not surprised. No one's surprised, Kyle. Uh, would you guys pray with me? Uh, Father, it is just a joy and a delight to be here with you, to come and and Lord, we just say that we are in your presence. We, we want to move further in, into your presence here this morning. Lord, I don't know what my friends carried in here today. Lord, but I do know that you are eager to meet with us. You rise to show us compassion. So, Father, would you speak this morning? Lord, we need you. We tell you we love you. And because of it, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I felt totally numb as I sat in a classroom of a church. It was filled with men um, who were leaders in their respective churches. Uh, it was in the evening. It was maybe the second day of a, a conference for pastors in our network. And I didn't even know, I cannot tell you what, <laughs> why I was in that room, what the breakout was about. I didn't know why I was there, but I, I felt hopeless. I was depressed. I was grieving at where I was in life. And my wife, Michelle, she was comfortably at home. She was clearly experiencing parental bliss, taking care of a four-year-old and a two-year-old and a newborn without me. Meanwhile, I was in Michigan, and unbeknownst to her and to me, I began falling apart. I couldn't have told you uh, what was up or down, what was right or wrong. All I knew is that life was really, really hard, and I was really hurt. I was really angry. I was really sad, and I didn't know what to do. I, I didn't know what was said or who was even talking but the dam of grief that was being held in burst open in front of a room full of these leaders. And I wept uncontrollably. I, I simply sat glued to this chair and wept. And I kept thinking, God, why have you deserted me? Jesus, is this what you mean by the abundant life? Why have the people who, who have been called to care for me done me what seems like the most harm? And I was paralyzed. I was paralyzed in hurt, in pain, in doubt, and so I just sat. 
uh, a torrent of emotion was just spilling out of me. I couldn't control it, nor did I want to. And I sobbed for what seemed like 45 minutes. It was pure grief. A pastor who was twice my age walked over during that time, and he put his hand on the back of my neck and just was silent. And when my bleeding heart just kind of stopped and had had enough, he quietly said, the Spirit is doing something. And then he asked a question. What happened? What happened? I didn't have a name for it in 2006, but what was happening in my life was a mild form of deconstruction. I just began to question a lot of things, so many things. God, are you good? What kind of God would put such leaders in power? Am I that kind of leader? If I left this group, would anybody even care? If I left the world, would anybody care? You see, these deconstruction stories, this time of questioning and doubting, it's been, it's been happening since the time of Jesus. As you'll see, it's been happening since the dawn of creation. But what has accelerated it in the last 10 to 15 years is social media. It's not new, but now it's everywhere. So this morning, I want to talk about deconstructionism. What is deconstruction? And this is where I'm going to ask for grace from you guys as a communicator and as a teacher because I'm kind of learning maybe along with you today. Or maybe this describes you, or maybe it describes a friend who's walked this path or who's in the beginning process of maybe they can't even name it like myself, deconstructionism. I'm learning what all of this means, and I'm leaning into it. So what is deconstructionism? What is deconstruction? So this morning, as we walk into this, I, I want to help you get a sense of perhaps what the church has not done very well in communicating and coming alongside people who are in the middle of this process. But what is this process? It is deconstructionism is the process of systematically dissecting the faith that you have embraced. It involves questioning, doubting, and usually rejecting the major aspects of the Christian faith. It's this taking apart brick by brick, uh, layer by layer, the, the tenets of Christianity and subjecting them to some sort of test. And often this process ends with com complete, just a very complete rejection of what you had once believed. And over the years, I've made, I've read some uh, and listened to some major like deconstruction stories. Um, I, I've seen them play out in friends' lives. Uh, YouTube is is just is filled with people who have deconstructed and are very willing to help you do the same. And questions like, can you trust the Bible? Was the cross necessary? If so, why? 
Is the church a place of God or, or power, hungry men? Is hell real? Do I believe in it? And in general, you'll find that uh, the questions that you are asking or someone is going through deconstructionism, is, is it, the, the questions they're asking fall into two distinct categories. The first one is about the veracity or the truthfulness of Christianity. The first area is about the truthfulness of Christianity. Can the Bible be trusted? Did Jesus come to save us from sin? Is there only one way to a relationship with God? And it is this type of question that we see in Genesis chapter 3. You see, after God had delivered His commands to Adam and Eve, the evil one shows up taking the form of a serpent, and it says that He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see, this is a question that is questioning the truthfulness of God. Questioning or, or spinning a question about what God says. Is it real? Can you trust his words? And in this scene, the, the woman responds to the serpent again. Questions um, that, that uh, about he, the serpent questions the consequence of eating from the tree in the middle of the garden. Saying, you will not surely die. Essentially what is what God says true? Is Christianity true? That's the first part. That's the first major category. The second one, the other category of de deconstruction questions tend to focus on the goodness of God. Is God good? Why would God allow evil? If God were good, He would not have allowed this in my life. Would a good God punish His own Son, let alone sinners? And so for most of us, there are some aspects of the moral vision of the Christian life that seem or they feel backwards to us, especially as it relates to commands that are about sexuality and marriage. And so here, the, the deconstruction process of the moral vision of the Christian life is this piece-by-piece -piece scrutiny Subjective scrutiny. And so when somebody who's in this place, questioning the goodness of what God asks, encounters something cultural that doesn't pass the test, often the biblical moral vision is rejected and something seemingly more desirable is picked up. And there's an, this attempt then you see to to hold on to core tenets of Christianity like the two natures of Jesus or the resurrection or the Trinity, but remake or revise the idea that God has any ownership rights over our lives. Because we are de deconstructing the goodness of such biblical ideas, we try to remake the historic message of Christianity, but usually to keep part of it without the whole is often a slow exit from everything. Or what is left is very unsatisfying, it's confusing, it's just empty. So deconstruction is the questioning, the doubting, and often the rejection of the truthfulness or, and the goodness of God or Christianity. And this can be very disorienting 
thing for anybody to do. It's disorienting for anybody who is inside of it. But listen, here's where, uh, here's where things might heat up this morning. Uh, I think I'm going to say what you might not expect me to say. So whether you are someone who has walked with Jesus for 25 years or someone who's a skeptic or even a, a cynic, I want you to hear this. Please don't stop asking questions. In fact, you need to ask more questions. And you need to doubt more. You need to ask more questions, and you need to doubt more. Why? Because you need to understand what you believe and why. You need to ask more questions of your faith and of Jesus and of the Bible, because without doing so, you're going to be left with a very immature understanding of who God is. You're going to be left with the same understanding you have of who God is when you were seven, <laughs> perhaps. But real, authentic growth, listen, it requires you to ask hard questions. And this isn't just a good idea. Scripture commands it. Paul, Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians. He says, listen, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you, you fail to meet the test. Examine yourself. Ask the questions of yourself. God is not afraid of questions. Instead, he tells you to walk into it, to examine yourself, examine your beliefs, examine your heart. In, in Acts 17, the Bereans were commended for their questioning and examination. It says, now these Jews were more noble than those at Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so examination, this idea of questioning, is actually considered noble. Again, Luke, the writer of Acts, he believed that the word of God could stand up to the severity of questions. So he wrote from a historical framework. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 John, he says, Beloved, beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So here, this is why we can state this confidently. A pathway to real maturity is a reasonable skepticism. A pathway to real growth, real maturity is a reasonable skepticism. We, we want you to know that in this community, your questions are welcome. We, we want you to ask tough questions. We're not interested in any one of you walking away from here today, this year, <laughs> while you're here on campus, while you're with us. We don't want you walking away with a superficial faith. And this applies both to questioning the veracity or the truthfulness of Christianity as well as the goodness. I know at least in a crowd this size, uh, I'm speaking to individuals who have experienced some deep 
personal pain. And we never want to minimize this, ever. Some of you or your friends may have experienced abuse or trauma within the church or from the church. And I've seen that it's often difficult. It's sometimes seemingly impossible to separate the truth claims of Jesus Christ, the warmth of his affections from our trauma. And some of us too begin, when we begin to walk down a road of questioning, doubting, and rejecting because of the pain that, that comes either direct or indirect, or we have a friend or family member who has experienced the evil inside of the church. I get that. We know that. We also know that you have questions. What are some of the questions that you are asking today? What are the questions that when you're alone with yourself that you, if you're there long enough, they rise to the surface? What doubts are you carrying today? You came in here, maybe there's some doubts, some things that you're doubting in your life, you're doubting about God. What doubts are you carrying today? You know, one of the most prominent stories of this relationship story in the scriptures, it's between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus, and this is in John chapter 3. And in this story, Nicodemus approaches Jesus, and, and Jesus tells him something really, really hard to hear. He says, Nicodemus, if you really want to be in the kingdom, Nicodemus, if you really want to enter the kingdom, listen, buddy, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, he doesn't accept this. He questions Jesus on this. He asks him, in fact, multiple questions, and Jesus answers him. And Jesus doesn't answer him according to the culture. His answers were antithetical to the culture. It was difficult for Nicodemus to receive the answers that Jesus had. And some answers are difficult or mysterious or they're both, but they need to be wrestled with. We want to create space for you guys to wrestle with them, to, to query them. Why? Because authentic faith is, is not this kind of, well, I hope this is true, kind of blind leap in the dark, right? Well, just, just, just take a leap. <laughs> authentic faith is a response to something that God reveals to you that you begin to see more clearly, more and more clearly. And, and we want this space here on Sundays and corners throughout the week to be a place to ask questions and to doubt and to ask more questions. And where there are doubts, we just want to invite you to doubt away. We don't want to minimize this at all. We might not now or ever have answers that satisfy your mind and your heart. But we want you to receive this. Your, your doubts and your questions deserve the time and space to be taken seriously. I, I, hope you, I hope you hear that. I hope you feel that, that your questions and your doubts, they deserve the time and space to be taken seriously. Well, this begs the question, why do that here? Why, why bring your questions into this space? Why do this in the context of church community? 
Well, here's my answer. Here's our appeal to you. And this is somewhat evidence-based, but it's also anecdotal. It's just what I've seen, and I'm beginning to see it, that it's not just me. Because when somebody deconstructs and begins asking their questions and does this on YouTube or with podcasts or with TikTok, as your community, the road, the road often leads you just right into the wilderness. That road just leaves you at a dead end. And many times the result is isolation and loneliness. It is not a pathway to restoration. But for every 100 very loud deconstruction stories out there on YouTube, there are several quiet stories of restoration. There are several quiet stories of reconstruction. If deconstruction can lead to reconstruction, we have to ask what reconstruction is. Reconstruction of of what? It would be a reconstruction of a trust in Christ that would be more pure, be more truthful, more honest than some of the things that may have propped up your faith beforehand. But some people in the church, what they've done is uh, they've, they've demonized deconstruction. Just demonized it. This is a bad thing. <laughs> Stay away from it. But is deconstruction bad? Is it bad? So what I want to do here is just help introduce some language to you that might put into some categories that you are wrestling with or now because I'm giving you a category you might wrestle with. If you're, if you're new here... Um, if you're new here, you might, you, you, you might not know that I love missionary biographies and autobiographies. I've read a lot of them. And uh, each year before spring break, I'd like to introduce through story the lives of men and women who have left everything that's comfortable for the sake of the gospel. And you see a common theme in these stories over the past two to three hundred years of these men and women is that when another people... When a person leaves to go to a culture that's a different tribe, a different tongue, a different you know, language, different nation, that in order to them to embrace Jesus, they have to do it without the cultural trappings of the missionary. And so what the missionary has to do is the hard work of disenculturate. They have to disenculturate the gospel for it to be what it is. Because the gospel is for all people, all time, all places, all nations, everywhere. This means that it requires us to be very meticulous about what the gospel is and about what the gospel isn't. And often, questioning Christianity and deconstruction, it leaves someone with no other options but just to reject Jesus. But what if there was another way? What if you or your friend really needs is to disenculturate rather than deconstruct? But you didn't know that was an option. You didn't even know that you must do this or how to do this or that you can even do this. Um, some of you, let me just give you an example. Some of you grew up in churches where what it means to be a Christian means that you are a Republican. Some of you grew up in, in churches where if you did not vote a straight GOP ticket, your salvation might be in question. Some of you grew up in a culture, your parents grew up in a culture where purity was more about fear than holiness. 
Some of you, maybe your parents grew up in a church culture where the only appropriate music came, came from K-Love. <laughs> while those heathens listened to Justin Bieber and Kanye and Limp Bizkit. Yes, the gospel, listen, the gospel always flourishes in culture. The gospel's meant to flourish in culture. In fact, in, in, <laughs> in the heavens, it's described as everybody that's there from all of these cultures, and all of the cultures are embraced. But the truth of the gospel transcends cultures. Listen, Jesus was not from Stockholm, Sweden. Okay? Deconstructing Christianity from the culture is necessary. Let me illustrate to you what this looks like from one man's eyes. What does it look like to deconstruct Christianity from the culture to disenculturate it? This is lengthy, but in it you'll see the necessity of asking questions and doubting the Christianity of the culture in order to discover truth. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. Never was there a clear case of stealing the livery of the court of heaven to serve the devil in. I'm filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate the religious pomp and show, together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. We have men stealers for ministers, women whippers for missionaries, and cradle plunderers for church members. The man who wields the blood-clotted cowskin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. The slave auctioneer's bell and the church-going bell chime in with each other, and the bitter cries of the heartbroken slave are drowned in the religious shouts of his pious master. Revivals of religion and revivals in the slave trade go hand in hand together. The slave prison and the, and the church stand near each other. The clanking of fetters and the rattling of chains in this prison and the pious psalm of solemn prayer in the church may be heard at the same time. The dealers and the bodies of men erect their stand in the presence of the pulpit and they mutually help each other. The dealer gives his blood-stained gold to support the pulpit, and the pulpit in return covers his infernal business with the garb of Christianity. Here we have religion and robbery, the allies of each other. Devils dressed in angels' robes and hell presenting the semblance of paradise. Here's a man who deconstructed Christianity. And it was good. If Frederick Douglass was able to deconstruct the Christianity of the land and in, disenculturate it from all of the untruth. Without doing this, one would have to assume the only one of the conclusions you'd have to come to is not just that slaveholders suck. What sucks is not just slave traders. What sucks is 
Jesus. But he was able to reason. This is not the true gospel expression. He was able to deconstruct the truth from a cultural construct, construct and have the words, the impartial Christianity of Christ. This is exactly what Paul does with the gospel. He shows us how the truth of the gospel transcends culture. He writes this to the church in Corinth, For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I become a Jew in order to win the Jews. Hey, I'll look like a Jew externally. I'll talk like a Jew externally. That's fine. The gospel's not about Jewishness. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I am not myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To, the outs- to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law. I love these parenthetical thoughts of Paul. Not, one, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That I might win those who are outside the law. To the weak, I become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. Things. Because the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it must be free from cultural trappings that men and women wrap themselves up in. Listen, Jesus does not justify good people who vote a certain way. Jesus justifies sinners, sinful people. And some of you here, you, if you identify with Christ, if you've turned from from, your, your, from yourself in sin to trust in the power of the resurrection and the belief in Jesus that he is the son of God, you might have walked in here with very heavy doubts. You might still have a lot of questions. You might be here and just go, man, God just doesn't feel near to me. And, and it's, it's, you're just not sure about things. And you're carrying these questions, and, and your questions have led to some doubt. But let me tell you that if you've walked in here with doubts this morning, you are truly in good company. Why? Why? Because among other things, Christianity and the life and the message of Jesus, it is one that is dedicated to truth. This means that that growth is being able to analyze your doubts, to bring your doubts to, to God and, and talk about your questions and ask your questions. But knowing that, knowing what is true doesn't necessarily mean that you believe it. You can know up here what is true, but struggle with doubting that you really believe it. And so what does that require? It requires honesty You need to be honest about what you do believe as well as what you don't believe. So what do you and I do with our doubts? Let me here take a moment and introduce to you something called proportionality. This, when I came across this years ago, was so helpful for me because I want to give you a better framework for what do you do when you you begin to question things and then you begin to doubt all of what you had believed, what do you do with those doubts? And here's where proportionality comes in. I want to give you a framework to better deal with it because this is what proportionality is. It is the measure or degree to which one ought to accept a belief or the degree to which a specific argument actually supports a belief. And so as, as Christians, as you believe in anything, this 
applies. But as Christians, we need to be honest with both with ourselves and with others about what we do believe. But we need to do this in terms of proportionality. This means that you should not accept an idea to the extent that you don't have sufficient grounds to accept it. Right? If somebody tells me the New England Patriots are the best team of all time, I'll be like, yeah, sure. No, I don't believe it. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Show me. Show me, right? Then you get evidence and you go, well, maybe you're onto something. <laughs> Let me say that again. You and I should, we should accept an idea. We should accept it to the extent that you have sufficient grounds to accept it. Let me illustrate it to you this way. You and I are constantly making unconscious and subconscious decisions all the time. Um, did anybody drive here, right? You looked at that car and you're like, well, that car was fine yesterday. It looks like a great car to drive. I think I'm going to drive it, right? Today for lunch, um, some of you are doing the membership class. You're going to take a look and you're going to go, okay, that salad looks good. It smells good enough to eat. I should probably eat it. That dog, right? You see it? That dog looks safe to pet. Um, that cat doesn't look friendly at all. It's true. This stool should hold my weight. I'm pretty sure. But if we put our belief and, and, and our doubt into percentages, if you are 60% sure or even 51% sure that this stool or this chair can support you because you saw that it supported someone else, you have sufficient evidence to sit down in it. You don't need to be 100% sure in order for you to know and believe that that chair is going to hold your weight. The degree of your belief in Christ, in the scriptures, in the resurrection, in the virgin birth, in the trinity, in God's grace, if you are 53% sure about these things because you've read it or you've experienced it and you've felt it, then there is nothing that should stand in your way for you to accept that belief. You don't have to be 100% certain to accept it. You can be 60% certain and filled with 40% doubt. It's your 60% certainty that gives you sufficient grounds to trust Him. And listen, your certainty can always grow. Your certainty can always grow. The church in the last four decades has experienced this. You don't, I don't even know if I'm old enough. We don't, but maybe me a little bit. We've experienced this massive shift in culture from modernism to postmodernism, and the church has not shifted well at all. We have not been a safe place for doubting. Doubts have been demonized. But it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way in here. I am more certain today than I was 20 years ago that the Bible accurately describes the human condition, our greatest desires, and that Jesus Christ meets my greatest need. That Jesus is true man and true God who saved me from sin and called me to himself, united me, united me with him and calls me to holiness. But I still doubt. I still doubt. I still lack trusting him at times. Do you? I doubt sometimes that God is going to change my pain 
I doubt sometimes that God is going to provide for me. I doubt that He is present in my life at times. But I go back again and again and again to the Scriptures and I reflect on my life and that He's my provider and I need that. Listen, guys, this message is for me. I need Sundays. I need to stand here and sing about the goodness of God and reflect on it and go, God, you have been good, even though I doubt you're still good. And if you walked in here like me with doubts, let me tell you, we are in good company. Did you know that? Did, we, are in, we are in good company. Because this is like the man who came to Jesus for help on behalf of his son who was tormented and had these frequent convulsions and would throw him. Can you imagine your son being thrown into a fire, being thrown like as if to drowning, being thrown into a pool? And I just get the picture of this father who's just lost all hope. And he's in pain and anguish for his kid. And he, he comes to Jesus for help. And Jesus says, all things are possible for the one who believes. That's simple. <laughs> Have you ever been in a place and somebody just says, just believe. That'll fix everything. That's hard to hear. So here is standing before the Lord. All things are possible for the one who believes. Upon hearing this, listen, this is why we are in good company. The scripture tells us that immediately the, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus, I do believe. Jesus, I have doubts. In my heart, there's places where I'm struggling. It is okay, church. It is okay to believe something only slightly more than you disbelieve it. You are not an unbeliever. You are not a criminal. You are not an apostate. If there are places in your life where you struggle to believe. In fact, you're in very good company. You see, because when you start the process of deconstruction, which you heard me say is good, we need to do it, we need to disenculturate, we need to ask questions, we need to doubt more, but when you start it, it doesn't need to end in the rejection of everything. But if it does, make no mistake, if it does, every person who's gone down this path is still on a faith journey. What's changed is just the way the story's being told. And here's the important piece of each one of us needs to wrestle with. Will you have the courage to subject your new belief system to, at, to the same level of scrutiny which you subjected your faith in Christ. You've taken on something new, but are you going to ask questions and doubt it in the same level with consistency that you did with scriptures and God? Trevin Waxy writes, you're no longer sure about the God of Christianity. Are you sure about the self that's put it, you at the center of your deconstruction story? So what if the deconstruction story you are going through or you might go through, a friend is going through, what if it's better defined as a learning to disenculturate the gospel? 
Deconstruction is often disorienting for the one who is going through it. And I know many young people who discover here, listen, in, in this church that teaches the gospel, I hope, as it is in scriptures, that the culture around them, they begin to kind of experience that something else has propped up their faith. They realize that, that I maybe I didn't really truly believe all this stuff. Something else was leading me to do it. Or they discover that they don't know what they believe. My prayer for you and for us is that this can be a place that encourages you to ask more questions, that encourages you to, to be okay with bringing your doubts, that this would be a safe place, that it would be done in community, that wouldn't lead to a, a road of nothing, but this would be a place where you can ask your questions, where you can bring your doubts in order to discover that truth is not an idea. Truth is a person. Truth is a person. And we want to end our time here by coming together as a community uh, to once again meet the Lord in communion. I was not here the last time this was set up, but I heard there was some ruckus affair that knocked this all over. Those are good times. <laughs> but look at how beautiful this is assembled. But we want to come to communion, come to the communion table. And listen, guys, I just want to encourage you to do this humbly and, and as honestly as you can. And so communion is a time for each of us to ask the Lord to reveal our hearts both vertically and horizontally. Vertically, we come to this table just recognizing our relationship with God. It comes through Jesus Christ. If you come to the table, what you are doing is you are affirming that I bring nothing to the table. He brings everything. And we are confessing our need for Him and His grace and His mercy and receive the tenderness of His love. And so if you haven't yet trusted Christ, if you are not in that place yet of full surrender, then we just tell you this isn't for you. The body of Jesus and the blood of, of Jesus, they, they, you haven't received them through faith by believing. And so the, but the act of taking communion is this very tangible expression that I've surrendered my life to Christ, that his body I know is broken for me. His, the, the, the juice represents his blood, which was poured out for my sin. So it doesn't make sense to celebrate that if you, just, if you don't believe it. So that's okay vertically, our relationship with God. But the communion table also represents a horizontal aspect. God asks us who have trusted Jesus to check and see if there are any people here, or maybe even not here, but who are a part of us that we might have something against or that has something against us. Maybe it's somebody we have yet to forgive or a place where we're not living in peace. So communion is always meant to be a community event where we pause and we consider, am I truly living out the message of reconciliation that God gives me vertically, am I living it out horizontally? And so if right now God is bringing to mind someone here where you're not at relational peace yet, we would just ask you to use this time to make a plan to seek out that brother and sister and to see reconciliation happen.
And for the rest of us, the Lord invites you to come this morning. He invites you to come with all of your questions, with all of your doubts. And you can do this any time during the worship. And if you want someone to pray for you, there will be some staff uh, standing on the side. And so let me, why don't you guys stand with me? I want to read to you a portion out of 1 Corinthians 11 as we prepare our hearts today. Is it warm in here? Good night, yeah. Um, uh, this is a portion from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, this is one of the earliest known creeds in the church. Paul, having learned this from others who probably maybe even knew Jesus, he tells us this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes you guys pray with me. Father, thank you that we can bring all of our questions to you. We can bring all of our doubts to you, Lord, that that doesn't scare you at all. God, I pray that this would be a great place to ask questions and to bring doubts. God, that we might find that you are good enough. You're more than enough. God, help us find answers that satisfy our both our mind and our heart. Lord, would we meet with you today in communion? And Father, we just, just tell you that I love you, Lord. Thank you for your great love for me, that you lavish on me, that I would be called your child. Lord, would you bless your children here this morning? In Jesus' name.